0: Hello and welcome to another episode of our Hospice News Elevate podcast. I'm Holly Vossel, reporter for Hospice News, and with me today is Howard Young, partner at the law firm Morgan Lewis. Welcome, Howard. How are you?
1: Thank you, Holly. Doing well. How are you?
0: Good, good. Starting this day off well. So today we're going to be discussing some of the largest compliance issues hiding in plain sight of hospice leaders. And what we really mean about that is, you know, we've seen some increased audit activity and other regulatory measures coming in the pipeline of of 2023. And that has some hospices concerned about their compliance risks, the impacts of that regulatory intention, particularly when it comes to areas related to fraud and abuse. So that's really where we're focusing our um, sites today. And I think just asking you right off the bat, Howard, you know, what do you think are some of those major regulatory trends that you're seeing in the hospice sphere right now?
1: Sure. Well, you know, hospice is an industry sector that's heavily reliant on on the Medicare program. Ninety percent of revenues, if if not more, typically are generated by Medicare. So whenever there's a focus by CMS and its contractors uh, and even Office of Inspector General on a particular sector like hospice, you that's going to have potential for quite an impact on hospice providers and how they think about delivery of, of care and the benefit and risk mitigation. So there, there's a bit of a, a paradox, as I see, with hospice in the sense that, you know, only about half of Medicare beneficiaries elect hospice. So mm-hmm. there's obviously a, a many, many more beneficiaries who could benefit from this. Um, you know, the, Jimmy Carter uh, electing hospice recently, I think it reminds uh, the the public at large that there continue to be many misconceptions about what hospice care is and and is not. So there's a lot of room for growth. On the other hand, and this is why it's a bit of a paradox, uh, you've got CMS and its various contractors, I'll talk a little bit about uh, who they are, that are increasing their audit activity. And uh, doing more takebacks, if you will, overpayment demands, which lead to appeals, which can be time consuming, expensive, and the like. And all that kind of activity would suggest perhaps that CMS, at least a portion of CMS, wants to control or shrink the hospice benefit and, and the spend for hospice care. So you know there's that tension, that push and pull that I think we'll continue to see because I don't see, unfortunately, the level of audit activity in hospice taking a dramatic about face, even throughout the pandemic when we thought we'd see a, a slowdown. And we did for targeted probe and educate during the, the, uh, the heavy years of, of the pandemic. But now, you know, targeted probe and educate is, is back in hospice with, with a vengeance, so to speak. And, you know, I think most unfortunate the the records that were that are being audited now the periods uh, under review for the backward looking audits are focused on the time period during the pandemic 19 I'm sorry 2020 2021 and the problem with that is you know some of those records were not as robust as we might otherwise like to see but we were in the throes of the pandemic unfortunate mm-hmm. thing is the the medicare contractors Looking at those records from 2020, 2021, 2022, they don't seem to be cutting any slack uh, for the hospice providers. That, like the rest of the healthcare sector and, and the public at large, we're just trying to get through the pandemic best mm-hmm. they could. Documentation uh, may not have been uh, top of mind when trying to avoid you know COVID transmission and the, and the like. Uh, so, you know, challenging times for sure for hospice operators. Um, mm-hmm. But on the other hand, I, I think you know continued interest by CMS in providing access to hospice care. I think it's absolutely the case that there are uh, plenty of policy folks at CMS and Congress who are very concerned about ensuring beneficiaries still have ready access to uh, to hospice care.
0: Right, and, and so I appreciate you making sort of all those ties together and. Painting that picture of what that hospice regulatory environment is going to, what's going on. But as far as what it's going to be as we're seeing 2023 unfold, you know, do you anticipate seeing maybe a rise in any um, hospice audit activities? And if so, you know, what kind of areas and what kind of audits um, should hospices really have on their radar? What would it mean for their compliance activities too? I'll stop and firing Not questions sure. at you. And let okay. you answer
1: those. <laughs> sure, Holly. Well, you know, while I wouldn't say this is a new category, a focus continues to be largely on the longer length of stay. So, mm-hmm. uh, the supplemental medical review contractor, smirk as some people refer to it, Neridian is the contractor for CMS throughout the pandemic and and even uh, through today. They they continue to focus on long length of stay uh, reviews. They had focused a little bit on GIP a number of years ago, but I think the focus remains on long length of stay. And that's true for the targeted probe and educate as well, most of which uh, are pulling between 20 and 40 claims on a prepay basis. But we've seen some post-pay. What I mean by post-pay is they're selecting records from claim periods that have already been paid. And sometimes taking back money, uh, as opposed to denying uh, payment on the initial, uh, claim. So TPE activity mm-hmm. has been mm-hmm. very robust and again seems to be focused on length of stay for the most part. So what does that mean? You know, for a hospice administrator executive, you, you really have to be very focused on your data, your length of stay data. Are you in an outlier scenario? That's the kind of data that, uh, Medicare contractors are looking at and mm-hmm. although they don't publish who and why they select hospices for audit, it, it, it seems pretty clear they're they're focused a bit more on on those with longer stays, if you will. I do think we may see a trend more towards targeted audits for new hospices, those that are newly enrolled in Medicare, and perhaps there's a tie into some of the concerns uh, that have been expressed you know, in the last few months around some of the, the new hospices legislation in California. I'm sure we'll talk about that at the state level to uh, focus in on on hospice organizations that, that may not even be active uh, providing hospice care, maybe only have a few patients. Those aren't typically audit targets. Why? Because they only have a few patients, Right. And why would the auditors focus there? But I I do think there's going to be increased uh, scrutiny and focus by CMS and its contractors and perhaps even OIG on on those uh, new entrants into into hospice. So uh, I guess bottom line is in many ways the, the same issues that hospices have wrestled with for uh, some time. You know, what's your average length of stay? Do you have a patient mix where it's heavily dependent on facilities, for instance? nursing facility, ALF. I think that's another focus area uh, for mm-hmm. many of the audits and, and will continue to be. On PRF, the Provider Relief Fund, the OIG is doing some limited audits of, of hospices. We've had hospice clients contact us and ha- how to respond and the like. Um, OIG had received a whole bunch of uh, money and direction from Congress to go and audit the use of provider relief funds and hopefully the documentation on the use of those grant funds, provider relief funds back in the early days of of the pandemic and, and, you know, reliance uh, hopefully on on good accountants and advice on the use, proper use of the provider relief funds will put hospices in in good stead. I I predict most hospices will be fine mm -hmm. through the PRF audits.
0: Yeah. But they use those funds according to the guidelines, right? So the that's all. Yeah. So there's PRF, there's TPE, there's the smirk audits, the UPIC pick audits from from the Medicare contractors.
1: It, it, it's coming those, at hospitals yeah. from many different directions, and mm-hmm. and I ought to say give a shout out to one other audit topic that I, I think we'll see greater focus on. The OIG is is doing an audit uh, of some hospices related to sort of non-hospice spend, that, that is hospice beneficiaries they've elected, mm-hmm. and they're receiving care and their billings associated with other types of providers. It could be hospitals, uh, physicians, DME. It all relates in to the, the relatedness issue, you know, CMS mm-hmm. is that everything under the hospice benefit Related to the terminal illness or related conditions is is the financial obligation of the hospice. So I I think we're going to see more audit focus and activity there right now. OIG is taking a look at it, but I would not be surprised if in the future some of the CMS contractors start to focus a bit more on that issue. So you know something certainly to to ensure you've got tight controls
0: in that area
1: and, and documentation around determinations as to what is related or or what is not related. And there's sort of a an odd tie-in there to another topic I wanted to raise, which is the notice of election. We're seeing in many, many of these audits that are focused on clinical eligibility, denials based on a technical documentation issue, and that is failure of a hospice to use word for word. Notice of election, essentially the model that CMS and, and some of its contractors put out around the revised notice of election and the uh, addendum. It, it's been very frustrating, maddening, if you will, to see some hospices find themselves with a complete payment denial for a benefit period because their the, the use of a, a word differs from the model election statement. Those are going up through the appeals process now, those denials, but that's something I want to call out for those hospices that haven't adopted the model. Even though it's not required by Mm -hmm. law to adopt the model, we're we're seeing payment denials uh, from the contractors, CMS contractors, for deviations in some of the wording in those hospice election
0: statements. Okay. Okay. I think that really helps understand some of the biggest auditing developments in site as well as some of the biggest compliance challenges. It sort of sounds like this common thread of compliance challenges that hospices have had as far as that eligibility, like the stay, those documentation details, but it sounds like new faces of those change of those compliances challenges are are, are what's on um hospices plate this year. Something else I wanted to touch on, which has sort of garnered more attention in in, at the national media level, you know, hospices have really, I think there was, you know, those ProPublica and New Yorker articles and some others that have drawn some negative attention to the industry as far as lagging regulatory oversight in some states. Do you see that kind of adding pressure on the hospice side or impacting the hospice regulatory landscape in those areas?
1: Sure. And again, this that goes back to the, uh, the comment I made about the California legislation.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, I guess one question, and it remains to be seen, Holly, is whether some of the other states where problems have been reported around, I call it warehousing hospice licenses, states like Arizona, Texas, Nevada you know, whether we're going to see any state legislation or, or perhaps regulation, additional oversight there. I know there's been some talk about whether CMS on a federal level can use a moratorium authority on, on enrollment, new hospice enrollment in certain geographies. You may recall that CMS exercised that type of authority with home health in certain geographies a number of years ago. So there's been some talk about that. Obviously, there are complexities uh, there, potential rulemaking requirements, and uh, and again, I I mentioned the access to care issue that CMS has. So at the same time, Holly, the the idea of states across the United States taking different approaches, uh, sort of a patchwork quilt of additional oversight would be very challenging particularly for those hospices that operate you know, in many different states and more and more you know we see that right there's been a certain level of consolidation within uh, hospice perhaps less of a concern for hospice organizations that operate just in in one state but uh, so I, I wish i had the crystal ball to say oh yeah mm-hmm. we know for sure where the federal government Where perhaps Congress may be. I think there's some interest in hospice, uh, licensing abuse, if you will, in the halls of Congress, where they're going to go, uh, and where the, the states may go. I haven't seen a rush to date, uh, to follow the California model yet. But, you know, if there continues to be abuse, there's another pro publica, uh, you know, article or journal investigation. It may give uh, some some wind under the wings, so to speak, to to push forward some of these efforts around trying to to really stem the abuse and And the abuse, you know for most of the five thousand or so hospice providers that are trying to do the right thing every day by their patients in the communities to to see these abuses and sort of the, the black eye effect is is difficult, right? Because mm-hmm. uh, they're now looking at the potential for. More oversight, more regulation, and many would say it's being initiated by by very few, right, who are engaged mm-hmm. in alleged uh, abuse.
0: Right. I think that's what we've heard as well is that for the large part, it's a lot of those providers are trying to do right by their patients. So, but in some instances, there have been, you know, hospice leaders who have faced criminal charges, who have um, received prison sentences high fines for their involvement in fraud abuse, and abuse schemes. I guess on that train of thought, what are some things that you know hospice executives can do to ensure that they're having a compliance with their organization, they're avoiding these sort of serious repercussions and missteps that can land them in regulatory hot water? What I wanted to ask was, what have you seen on that legal side as far as some of the big, biggest myths Steps that hospice leaders have taken to land them in that regulatory hot water? And then what can they do to, you know, avoid getting into those serious situations?
1: Sure. Well, as a former uh, senior OIG attorney myself, I continue to be on the lookout for and get pulled into matters relating to fraud and abuse in in the hospice Mm -hmm. sector, you know, strong compliance, Programs are are really essential. You know, with, as I said before, the vast majority of of hospice expenditures coming from Medicare, there's even if it's not a legal requirement to adopt the compliance program, it's quite important to be a good steward of those Medicare funds. And and I think it drastically reduces the likelihood that the government would see or believe that there's criminal activity at a at a hospice. That's not to say adopting a compliance program gives you immunity, but it gives the organization and its staff and its team members the ability to raise concerns. And here, Holly, I would say, you know, what could get you into hot water and and turn something from what's called a civil enforcement area, False Claims Act, to criminal? I think one of the risk areas is if there's uh, complaints. Lodged internally, and the individuals face retaliation for for raising concerns. The other area we often see enforcement, criminal enforcement, is in the anti kickback law area, and I'll spell that out a little bit. So, you know, hospice, uh, just like other healthcare providers, can't pay for referrals, right? Uh, Knowingly paying for referrals or or uh, providing under the statute called remuneration. Something of value in exchange for referrals violates a criminal statute and a kickback law. So, you know, we continue to see, I'd say on an isolated basis, but still when it happens, the government is always interested in enforcing that statute. If there are payment for referrals to physicians, to other types of providers, And even to beneficiaries, sort of buying beneficiaries enrollment, if you will, you know, paying for beneficiaries to enroll, even if particularly if they're not terminally ill, you know, that, that's the kind of criminal conduct that the government will most certainly be interested in pursuing criminally. So again, for the vast, vast majority of hospices, are they in those waters, swimming in those waters? No, but there, there are some. Uh, Mm -hmm. It has a black eye effect, as we talked about before. But I think for most hospices, it's important to have that strong compliance fabric and be focused on your physician and referral relationships and Mm -hmm. ensure they're not just above board, but also documented appropriately, contracts, and they're commercially reasonable and, and the like. All of that will put those organizations in in good stead in terms of avoiding even, you know, the the, the whiff of a a criminal inquiry or investigation.
0: I appreciate that, um, that you've kind of painted that picture, woven those uh, threads of compliance fabric for our listeners. I think that's really all the time that we have today, but thank you so much, Howard, for sharing your your insights with our listeners.
1: You're very welcome. I appreciate the opportunity, Holly, and you have a great day.
0: Well, we invite our listeners to tune in next month for another episode of our Hospice News Elevate podcast. Take care for now.